Hey, tourpreneurs, it's Mitch Bach. And just a quick note before we begin today's episode, Tourpreneur is currently sponsored by Google. We're thankful for their support of our community, and we are offering with them a completely free course helping you unlock the power and potential of Google's Things to Do program, which is specifically helping tour operators add their tours to Google in new ways that gives you new exposure and more direct bookings. To learn more, go to tourpreneur.com slash Google. And as always, show notes, more resources, links to our newsletter, our business coaching community, and so much more are available on tourpreneur.com. Now to the episode. Because one of the things I learned right off the bat is people want to respond, even more so now, if you don't respond to someone who sent you an email and says, hey, I want to spend my money with you and take a tour and you wait, you know, even six hours, they may have found someone else to book. Welcome to the Tourpreneur Podcast. Travel industry veteran Shane Whaley will take you on a journey with fellow tourpreneurs, sharing their tips, ideas, insights, and success stories to inspire you to make your tour business the best it can be. And now, please welcome your host, Shane Hello and welcome to episode 30 of the Tourpreneur Podcast, the weekly podcast where we flatten the learning curve to help your tour business grow and to help you delight your customers by sharing the successes and sometimes failures of other tour operators. Now today, episode 30 is quintessential tourpreneur and I can say quintessential because we're 30 episodes in now. So today we're going to learn how, how Eric built a tour operator business from scratch and how five years down the road he was able to sell it to new owners. So this episode 30 is his story and it is action-packed with lessons and advice for tourpreneurs. It's rare we get to speak to someone on the show who built the business and then sold it so we get the complete journey, okay? And I'm commending Eric here for giving us so many tips. We cover so many subjects from how to price your tour, how to build up your knowledge of tours, even things like how he had to deal with routes because Volkswagen buses are apparently quite low powered. And as you know, there's a hill or two in San Francisco, right? We talk about why he works with Peak. We talk about his marketing, what it was like working with Airbnb as one of their trial partners when they first started out. What unique ways has he employed to retain his tour guide talent? So there's plenty in this. Uh, Let's cross over to Eric. Show notes available at tourpreneur.com forward slash 30. And I've actually got extended show notes now. So let me know what you think of those and if you enjoy them. Uh, Let's cross over to Eric Horman. Welcome to Tourpreneur, Eric. How are you? I'm doing great. I am really excited to talk to you because most people we chat with on the show are just starting out or they're a year or two into their business, you know, early doors. You set up your tour business in 2013 in San Francisco. You sold the business in 2018. So I'm really happy to kind of talk to you about the full circle journey, if you will, of your tour business. For those who don't know, can you share a little bit more about Vantigo, which was your tour business in San Francisco? Yeah, we're, well, I still say we're because I'm still heavily involved talking to the owners now, but started a little tour company in San Francisco with a 1971 VW bus, or if you're from South America, Combi, or if you're from the UK, like you, Shane, it's a camper van. 
but basically started with one van and grew it out to be a fleet and doing city tours, wine tours, a bunch of other tours I had no business doing. It was quite the journey, I will say, and I didn't get a chance to tell you this before, but when I started, it was a, a good way for a business right off to own a VW bus. And I was doing it on nights and weekends. And my big break was actually an article in the UK Guardian, which I had no clue what the UK Guardian was. And for those of you who are listening, it's like the New York Times of the UK. But the woman came on an interview with me and I thought it was the Bay Guardian, like right. a local yeah. weekly magazine. Let's just say I was pretty unfiltered with her. <laughs> and about six months later, they put me on the front page of the Sunday newspaper when people, at least in 2013, people were still getting newspapers. Yeah. It was a runaway success for me. It really put me leaps and bounds ahead, but there was a lot of bumps along the way. Yeah, I'm sure. So I want to start at the very beginning. First of all, why a VW bus? Well, I have an affinity for Volkswagens and classic cars, but I was brought home from the hospital with my twin brother in a 1971 VW bus deluxe, which as it happened, the second car of our fleet, I literally emulated or painted it the same color and it was basically the same nice. van. So yeah, it was basically raised in a VW. Right. I get it. And I know that my neighbor has about three or four of these, as you say, we call them camper vans outside his house. He's a huge fan. So I know that they have a very loyal and staunch following. I'm curious to know though, Eric, so your background is you worked in tech. When did you first get the idea that, hey, I would love to run a tour, first of all, here in San Francisco, and then secondly, by using the VW vans? I got the idea trying to figure out a way to mix my hobby with somewhat of a passion. And I was working in the tech industry and I had a lot of great ideas and they just probably pretty young for it. I'd you know, talk to my CEO at the startup and say, hey, what if we pivoted this way? And you know, usually unsuccessfully told that like, hey, keep doing what you're doing. You're good at that. So I started on nights and weekends and just figured this would be a, a really fun way to get in the industry. I had experience in the past running like a Boy Scout camp, working with a rafting company, leading outdoor trips and stuff. And I was like, well, I have this knack for talking to people and kind of showing them things. But when I first started, it was rough because I became an encyclopedia of San Francisco. And then I just verbally, I almost say verbally assaulted my first tourist to come on my tours because I just regurgitated four and a half hours of history and then would take a breath and people loved it. And I'm glad the van was cute because I think that's what helped people <laughs> have a good time. But, oh, I was not the best tour guide when I first started. How did you amass so much knowledge about San Francisco? You know, it's funny. The way I did it is the exact same way that I started training my tour guides. But I started going San Francisco before the freemium tour model that came out. San Francisco Library actually would provide free docent tours of different districts every day. I think they still do to this day. So I did a, a good amount of those. I went on other people's tours, which now I've become friends with some of those operators. Then I literally hit the library and got every documentary, every book I could. And then obviously me coming from the tech area and having lived there for a number of years, I had the most local, you know, startup land, the Googles, the Twitters, all that kind of stuff that people also want to hear is like, where's Twitter located or what happened over here? Or was it true that, you know, a startup rented Alcatraz and didn't pay the bill? It was fun to mix those cultures together and kind of put it that way. But yeah, I just literally hit the books. 
It was funny when I lived in San Francisco, I believed this for like three years. I used to go running along the Embarcadero and someone said to me, oh, you see those big cranes over there in Oakland? That's where George Lucas got the idea for the Atat walkers in Star Wars. So I'd always look at them and think, oh, wow, that's what the idea. And then someone said to me, no, 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 that's BS. That's just an urban myth. <laughs> yeah, that's the same with like the Palace of Fine Arts, too. They actually say that people say that it inspired uh, George Lucas, some of the palaces in the movies. But like George Lucas wasn't even over there. And that was actually basically the Presidio area, which later they put their headquarters at. But yeah, there's so many fact and fiction, just like there's a saying that everyone always says the coldest winter I ever spent was in San Francisco. And people always say that was Samuel Clevin's Mark Twain, but it actually wasn't. It's kind of a, a riff off of another line that was out there. Right. I get it. So again, I wanted to, to dig in at the start of your journey. So you have this idea, the, the Volkswagens, knowledge of San Francisco. So how did you then think about your roots? How did you think about pricing? Talk me through those early moments for you. Yeah, so the routes were pretty exciting to figure out because obviously an underpowered 1971 Volkswagen bus with essentially a bug motor trying to push seven or eight people up the steep hills. And they're all, it's a stick shifter, a manual transmission. So it was one of those things where I was scared to be doing it. And so at night, I actually, when I'd get off of work, I'd do dinner and any other work I needed to. And then I'd literally probably about eight or nine at night, I would just go drive the routes that I had looked up on Google Maps to try to like sink in the route and test it, which was good. But also you want the daytime traffic to actually anticipate things when you're going to like a busy area like Union Square. It's kind of like, how can you give a really great tour, but also get out of there quickly so you don't get stuck in the financial traffic. So that was a big piece. It evolved every year, every time. The best part was actually the first guides that I hired, I gave them carte blanche. and said, here's the route that I put together. Here are the talking points. You don't have to drive the exact same way that I do. In San Francisco, there's construction and road problems and stuff. So you're constantly you know, battling the streets. It was one of those things that iterated over time. I will say the most interesting thing is the evolution of Uber coming in basically caused the roads to get more and more congested because there's less regular drivers and more Uber drivers. So we even had to change the route and or shorten the tour in some ways. But the other thing, too, is considering what was stuff that people really liked and were interested in and what was stuff that I liked and was interested in but not necessarily everyone else did. So there was a lot of iteration. There was a lot of changes. How did you come up with the pricing for the tours? Yeah, so the pricing, I looked at the market and kind of actually broke down all my competitors' prices by the hour. So if they were charging a $99 tour and there was a four-hour tour, obviously that's 25 bucks an hour. So I brought everyone that I thought was a competitor of mine and kind of did the average and I started out low, obviously, because me as a single operator, I could afford to do that because I didn't need all the insurance that I needed until I got employees. So I started off low just to try to attract more business, get more reviews, get things eventually bump the price up once we got a good number of reviews under our belts and got basically like once we got, I think, over 500 reviews, I felt I could push the price to what I wanted to be because we were more of a boutique tour as opposed to a hop on, hop off. Never miss an episode of the show. Subscribe at tourpreneur.com forward slash subscribe. 
would your advice be to people listening to the show today, maybe two entrepreneurs in waiting, they've got this great idea for a tour and they're really struggling with pricing. Would you say that your approach would be one you would recommend to them? Or do you have any other kind of advice when it comes to pricing, you know, starting out the gate? Yeah, I think if you're starting out, it's really important to study the market and see what the prices that everyone else has and then have a plan. If you don't watch it or check your pricing, you can quickly realize that you're not charging enough or you could have charged, you know, $3 more, $5 more, made a little bit more money. And at the end of the year, that makes a huge difference. So I think the big thing is study your market, get the competitor stuff, figure, do a breakdown of what it is per hour that other people are charging come into that average or set a goal and say, for the first three months, I'm going to do this. For the next six months after that, I'm going to do this. But the other thing too, is also consider tools in your tool belt, like trying to do dynamic pricing. Hey, I've got plenty of people coming to me on weekends. Maybe I'm going to raise the price on weekends by $5, but Monday through Wednesday, I'm going to drop it by 10 so I can fill my seats. Yeah. Yeah. Good advice. What barriers did you have to starting your tour business? You're a little different from some of our guests who may be running walking tours because just, hey, you know, it's just walking. It's not vehicles. It's not usage of roads. You know, and I imagine, you know, I've spent a bit of time living in San Francisco. There's quite a bit of red tape. What barriers were in the way for you starting up? Yeah, I tried to start my company in February of 2013, and it didn't actually get to be able to take my first tour officially until August 2013. And that was Every vehicle that's out there or every tour that's out there that operates in a vehicle has to have commercial insurance, but depending on their state, they have to have some kind of licensing. And so California obviously has its own arm. When I applied, it was also when Uber had just really fired up its engine and everyone wanted to be licensed to be able to be a black town car Uber. So that's why it took six months. Wow. But that's six months, I will say. You were kind of asking what's a good advice for someone who starts up. That six months was like six months of study time. So really, it put the brakes on it a little bit so that I could have all this knowledge in my tool belt and then go into doing the tours in a good fashion. But that was a big hurdle. I think realizing that my competitors were not necessarily my competitors in some way was kind of a little bit of a hurdle where, you know, certain people I looked at and said, oh, you know, I'm competing against them. And had I realized early on that I aligned myself and say, I'm just trying to start out. I'm not really your competition. I'm a smaller tour operator. You know, it's just me. If you want to send some people my way, that'd be great. I think the biggest hurdle is getting out of the way of preconceived notions that you may have or thoughts and just being more open to thinking outside the box and whether like I didn't use resellers like TripAdvisor or Yelp or any of those other ones at first because I thought, well, I'm so small, it's fine. You know, all I got to focus on is getting 14 people in my van throughout the day. I don't really need it. And then as I grew, that notion just went out the window. So how did you get the word out in those really early days then about your tours? The Guardian article literally lit a fire for me because I can tell you overnight, it was like ding, 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 reservations were coming in. After that, there were spinoff articles like the Huffington Post wrote an article and a couple other, you know, because we were a hip, cool little idea, right? We're a unique deal. That was part of it. You know, I battled trying to use Google AdWords even to this day. I can't or Google ads as it's called now. can't say that I'm an expert on that at all. I think the other thing is after starting to review our data 
we had such a quality product that we actually saw that a 20% of our business was coming from word of mouth, which usually most people say it's about 10%. So we had a good following there, but really it was reviews. It was all about, in those days, TripAdvisor was a real pure ranking system to start anyways. There was one month where all of a sudden I became number one on the TripAdvisor ranking. And it was like, I'd hang up the phone and the phone would ring again. Then the next month or two, they uh, normalized their algorithm a little bit. But it really, the first part of it was really just getting up the review ranking sites and being there. And then later the word kind of came into, you know, we have Instagram, social media, we got on a television show, some other, you know, random things that helped. But it was, uh, you know, I found the community really wanted to help you out. Once you align yourself with other operators, maybe a food tour operator or someone else that's in your area, we're all trying to achieve the same goal, which is to show our city and how amazing it is and all the different aspects of it in the culture and history. So it's kind of like the food tour person's like, hey, I'll promote you, promote me. And that was a real positive influence on helping our business out. So Eric, if you were to start all over to again today, in terms of marketing, what would your strategy be? So let's say, for instance, like it's great you had the Guardian article, but if I'm listening to this now, I'm thinking, yeah, great for Eric. He got that bit of luck there. It's the same with Tony Slice of Brooklyn. He got on the uh, Today Show on NBC. No one's picking me up. I'm sat here. I'm, I'm trying to do, you know, promote my tour and market it in an ethical way. What would your advice be in terms of what would you do right now if you had to start up again? Yeah, if I had to start all over again, I would find those avenues that are untapped or resellers or articles or blogs and things of that nature. You know, I will say when it comes to Google AdWords, when it comes to these online advertising options, and I've heard in several other podcasts, it's like a lot of us tourpreneurs have been burned by people who say they can get us to the top of the Google ranking and all that kind of stuff. And I think the biggest thing I would do is focus on one avenue and work that pretty hard. Whether it's a hotel, you're trying to get them to refer you, or it's Google ads or Facebook ads or even Instagram, do it until you're good. It's really going to be terrible for months, probably. But one day it's going to click and it's going to do well. But that's the thing I found that I would wish I could go back and tell myself is focus on one advertising model. You know, if you want to pay someone else to focus on the others, great. But if you could focus on one and become really good and proficient at it and then move on to the next, it'll help you build your business and it won't get you all the business you want at once. But the long game is if you want to, you know, have a successful business, you need to focus and know your market, know what you're doing, uh, know how to speak to it and then know if you're not good at it and pay someone else to be good at that. Yeah, absolutely. In terms of hotels, how was your relationship with the Bay Area hotels? Uh, well, I wish I could say it was good. Every time I'd go out and do a hotel campaign, I would just like go do a big blitz and talk to every hotel I could for like a day or two. And then I'd try to follow up or connect. And the thing that happened in San Francisco, which is kind of industry wide, is most of the concierges, that whole side of the house started to disappear. And really what I found is as we approached like 2017, 2018, the only concierges that were full-time fledged part of their organizations were the five-star hotels still. And the rest of them, you know, your smaller brands like a Marriott or something like that, you'd put all this time and effort and talk to someone and they were there for three months. 
and then they moved on. And so it was the hotels, as much as we tried, we definitely had a couple boutique ones that liked us and would refer people to us for sure. But the other thing too, is we had this really interesting effect in San Francisco was I call it the Alcatraz effect, but I'm sure in New York, it's like the Statue of Liberty. You have these primary activities that people focus when they think about a town or a city they're going to. You know, if you're going to St. Louis, it's like, I want to visit the Arch. If you go to San Francisco or like Seattle, it's the Space Needle and Pike's Market and, you know, maybe ride a ferry boat. San Francisco, it's Alcatraz, it's Mere Woods, and it's like City Tour Lombard. And then there's secondary activities, which are like your food tours and your, you know, real underground or, you know, certain clubs or shows you want to see. Well, for San Francisco in about 2014, 2015, we had a really steady incline of tourism and Alcatraz started selling out and it hadn't before. And it was selling out months in advance. And what that did is it gave everyone who was coming to San Francisco fear about other activities and things they needed to book. So what happened to the concierges is where someone was typically pretty casual and they get a hotel room and they walk up to the concierge and ask them what's, you know, what's a good tour to take. When people found out that they showed up and couldn't get to Alcatraz, then they told their friends and their friends started booking weeks and months in advance. And it basically kind of did in a lot of the concierge business because everyone was going online and booking in advance because they were just scared that if they showed up, they wouldn't be able to get what they wanted to do. Yeah, it's interesting you bring that about the concierges. I booked a hotel fairly recently in San Francisco and they didn't have a concierge. And actually, well, I got an email from them, a confirmation email, and it was like, oh, things to do in San Francisco. I thought, okay, this is interesting. But it just linked to places of interest. You know, there was no partnerships with, for instance, you know, your old company or, or a walking tour. And I'm like, wow, the hotels are missing. I mean, we could probably spend a lot of time discussing this and it's not our domain, but it's worth noting that I don't think the hotels are, you know, doing as well as they could be in terms of working with local tours and local activities and actually making some money and providing a really good service to people who are visiting the city. Yeah, I think it's still untapped in a lot of ways. I think about it and uh, the new owners, they're actually the guy who runs, who was part owner of the company is a doorman who grew up in the concierge industry. He actually left because of what I was talking about, but he's going back into hotels where he knows some of the people and he's doing exactly like you said, he's trying to get up to the upper management and other people and say, look, why don't we work together to set up this, like a guide or some kind of relationship so you can drive traffic to our way and we can have this nice mutual setup and have it go. But as we all know, it's, it's hard to get in there and talk to a hotel manager unless you know someone or can get there. So, Well, I think they just have to see the value of it. And I know Marriott, for instance, at a chain level are doing quite a lot of work with tours and activities and I think it'll just take one to crush it and the rest will follow suit for sure. Want to connect with other tourpreneurs? Then join our Facebook group at tourpreneur.com forward slash Facebook. But let's go back to your business. So because you were saying you were working nights and weekends and at what point did you go full time or how did that look for you? Yeah, that was a really fun experience. So it was right around probably a month before the Guardian article had come out. And I turned to my wife and said, you know, this was really fun to start. And I really love what I'm doing. I'd really, you know, we should go full time. And luckily, um, she was a big part of supporting me because she had a great job at the time as well. Said, go for it. And so you know, it was really scary to jump off of it. When I tried to quit, my boss said, well, could you stay for two more months and help. And it was a tech job, right? So I felt like I was kind of coming in there being an office space role because I basically just worked on my business the whole time. 
But it was scary. There was days I didn't have bookings. There was, you start racking your brain. I would go down to Fisherman's Wharf and try to like street hustle people, you know, like, which in hindsight is kind of funny to see this guy out there with a VW bus saying, Hey man, you want to come on a tour? You know, (laughs) I would probably not be the guy who's like, yeah, that seems legitimate. I learned a lot. I really got out there. I think one of the things that's really interesting, and I've heard it as kind of a theme on the show, is that some people are like, I'm going to go create a bunch of different tours because that's what I did. I went and was like stir crazy. And I was like, well, what if I offered a oyster tour? What if I offered a beer tour that was like a way too long of a drive away from here? What if I did wine tours? What if I did a Highway 1 tour? And I developed all these products, which was a really great way of learning about how my company worked. And actually, I made everyone that got hired after that, their first part of their training was to develop a tour. Basically, that free time and jumping off and going from my full-time career to full-time tourism meant that I had to learn a lot by myself. I had to get a lot more organized. I had to change a lot of my bad habits of what I was doing in tech land versus, you know, bookings. Because one of the things I learned right off the bat is people want a response, even more so now, if you don't respond to someone who sent you an email and says, hey, I want to spend my money with you and take a tour... And you wait, you know, even six hours, they may have found someone else to book. So I had to learn really quickly that I had to be ultra responsive. I had to be a a concierge to my customers and help them know the town and get everything else, but also change my habits. That was a big thing is just, you know, going from a full-time job working for someone else to working for yourself. Idle time is great, but focus is more important and focusing on getting people in seats versus creating a bunch of new tours. That was the biggest lesson right out the gate. So your advice would be to have fewer tours, more people on those tours, not to create too many tours. I mean, there's an old saying, don't make me think, right, when it comes to booking online. Yeah. Even to this day, I regret and love. I did, I literally started creating like eight different tours. Some of the tours were basically anemic to others. They would feed, you know, my ability to do two city tours in a day versus taking a whole day to go up to Napa and Sonoma and doing a wine tour. The money just wasn't there. We would make twice as much money and my tour guides would, you know, get off of work earlier and they'd make more money in tips than they would doing a full day of wine tours. We did do some tours though to give my tour guides a break. One of the things I focused on with my company was making sure that I uh, kept people in. We had our attrition rate or our people would leave probably every two and a half, three years, which is pretty unheard of for a lot of tour companies. Everyone was full time. It wasn't like a seasonal deal. But one of the wine tour, for example, or the Highway 1 beer and wine tour, those tours I kept on so that a tour guide didn't feel like they had to do a, a city tour over and over every day. And so they'd have a break to kind of get out there, which business sense doesn't make the most sense. But a lot of times keeping employees happy, this yin and yang. And I mean, would you change that now if you could get in a time machine and saying, yeah, you know, those wine trips just didn't make the money the city ones did. So I should just focus on the city trips. Uh, I guess I would say yes and no. At one time, I wasn't very focused and I restored an old Ford school bus and would kind of dumped a bunch of money in there. And had I focused, I could have actually probably focused on getting more people on the city tour and then building out the wine tour business a little bit better. I wouldn't necessarily like even to this day, the beer tours that my former company does, they're not profitable in the, the slightest, but they are a break. 
you know, Chad, who runs the company, he loves doing those because he stays connected with the breweries. It's a whole different industry of tourism. And I think it's important to kind of keep your avenues open because when we would get those charters, that was the big thing is we get a lot of corporate charters and they'd say, I'd like a two hour city tour. And then if there's something interesting, and unique, and we could easily pull up the Rolodex and say, hey, we know these guys at this brewery. It's a really great spot. We'll take you on a beer tour. You guys can have a pint. And, you know, the city history along with some beer culture or wine or vice versa. So I think it's important to keep those avenues open and have those to stay sane. But at the end of the day, business wise, I I don't know if I'd tell myself to keep those tours on the books, you know? Yeah, absolutely. One of the big questions for you, I'm really excited to hear your answers on this based on your tech background in particular is, which booking software company did you first pick when you moved to taking online bookings? Yeah, so I started out with ResD. I think by happenstance, I was maybe one of their first US customers because when eventually I left ResD, I remember the CEO reached out to me directly and was like, you know, what it'll take to stay wow. on this. Wow. And they had a really great software. They, to this day, I think ResD is really, really malleable. It's really customizable. But it's kind of like you just said about tours. You know, I have eight different tours. There's too many choices. I think ResD is really has a lot of choices and a lot of customization, but it's a lot of work. And if you're not technically inclined and, you know, someone from ResD may reach out to me and say, hey, we're better now. But I really did like them for the customization piece. But I believe, you know, someone who wasn't coming from a tech background, it's a little rough to get, you know, everything you wanted connected. And when I started, the Weebly's, Wix, and Squarespace, were, they were just getting out there. So just coming off of the era of Dreamweaver and everyone else and going into this templatized thing. So it was an interesting time. But I went from ResD and I ended up going to Peak. Okay. And what was it about Peak? Because, you know, you could have gone, well, it depends when this was, of course. I mean, there's 160 plus out there right now. But what made you go to Peak above everyone else? At that time, it was resource management. And to explain that, I started out with one Volkswagen, but I was a big idea guy. I had eight tours and I wanted the ability to where I could offer all eight tours on a Saturday. And the first person that could come in and book, let's say they booked two seats on the city tour, it would block out four of the other tours that were like all day tours and then just offer any either the rest of the seats on that city tour or in the afternoon, a city tour or a beer tour. So it could make me look a lot bigger. That was the thing that pushed it over the edge was my ability to kind of use resource management that way. Yeah, I can imagine. Because I was going to ask you if you're running eight tours with one bus, how that would work. So it's smart to have that functionality with Peak. And, you know, obviously this was back 2030. Well, when did you switch to Peak? Uh, it was 2014. So ResD, I, I probably was on it for six or seven months and then switched over. You know, when you look at all the other booking platform providers out there right now, do you think most of them have this kind of resource management or is this a real peak product? I think a lot of them have it in some form or fashion. I think the design and the usability piece on peak is a lot better in a lot of ways. That's what kind of keeps me and the former company, and I have another company I'm starting up as well that's using it as well. The design and function, you know, if it takes me seven clicks on another software to do something that I can do in two and do it intuitively, 
I think people don't think about that when they're choosing a software or doing something of that nature. So there's a lot of great softwares out there. You know, every day, like I said, Resd is a great one. Fair Harbor is a solid option as well. But for me, for Peak, it was the design and form and function and the least amount of clicks to get the job done. And also there's mobile options as well. And I could run my business from my iPhone. Yeah, absolutely. And do, can you take bookings at point of sale or did you do that? Did that ever happen where people would rock up and say, hey, can I book a seat? Yeah, I wouldn't say we did that often. We would typically get booked out pretty far in advance. But when people, a lot of times what would happen is they were waiting for another tour and they wouldn't show up if we happened to be at the same pickup spot. And we'd be like, hey, you know, I'm sure something happened with that tour company. If you want to come with us, we'll give you a quick rate here just so you can get a tour in because you have this one day here. So yeah, we use the point of sale a lot of times to sell t-shirts or stickers or coffee mugs or everything else. That was a nice feature too, because you could just pull it up and hit three buttons and you're charging it to their card or they can whip out a different card or pay for it in cash and we can account for it. And can the guests give tips via that to your guides? Carry cash anymore when I'm out, right? So when it comes to tip time, I was like, oh, crikey, what have I got in my wallet? Yeah, we would accept tips. I kind of had increments of $5 in the system so that someone said, hey, can I tip you this way? We were lucky enough. I think we never really asked for tips. We The only thing we ever did is in our initial booking and reminder emails, we just reminded people that, hey, in the United States, a lot of people make their livelihood and how they make their living wage, especially in a place like San Francisco, because we were paying our guides more than pretty much everyone else was. And that's part of, you know, why they stuck around so long. But, you know, we wanted to make it at a point like, we're not going to hit you when we see you. We're not going to ask you for a tip in person, but we're just going to remind you that like, hey, this is kind of how the U.S. custom and tourism and guides work. You know, if you want to give them a tip for a great job, great. If not, no big deal. Reviews are just as great because I actually had a compensation plan for my guides based on reviews as well. Oh, and how did that work? Well, it started when I was a tour guide that I would take my tips. And if they got 10 five-star reviews, I'd turn around and take tips out of my tip jar and hand them $100 from that. And then when I stopped touring, I started paying them out. And then I realized one of the hardest and best things about being a tour guide is that there's seasonality, right? Like you'll have the slow season and the busy season. And the slow season, you're hoping that the busy season, you squirrel away enough money so that the slow season you can you know get by and what i did is i switched it to a pto policy paid time off so for every 10 five star reviews that a guy gets i give them 4 hours of pto which is really nice cuz in the united states you actually get taxed if you pay them out a bonus like that you get it's taxed at some horrendous rate but if you give it to them as vacation time it gets taxed like normal income and so when the slow season comes which would hurt me a little bit, obviously, because during the slow season, if they're like, I'm going to take two weeks of paid time off, but I know that they earned it and every review they got, it you know helped my company grow and do better. That was my biggest, and I tell that to every tourpreneur that I talk to, say, hey, consider this. This is a really great tool to keep guides around and also make them happier because they are getting tips, but paid time off in tourism and guiding is a, a rarity. And how did you know they were responsible for those reviews? We kind of put the onus on them, right? When it was a $100 bonus, we would encourage them after each tour to go in and write an email to each person. There's also some of the guides were really good about it. We have P 
Peak has their native iPhone app. You can go in and literally text your whole group and send a picture. It's just a function in the app. And so my favorite guy who's still working for the company, Eliza, um, she was my second in command for a while too. She just got on top of it. As soon as she realized like, hey, this is pretty easy for me to gain a bunch of PTO. She would take a picture of the group sometime throughout the tour and then send them a text with a link to, you know, Yelp or Google or TripAdvisor saying, Hey, I had a great time with you. Uh, it was funny that we all saw a whale under the Golden Gate Bridge today. Here's a picture of our group. Uh, if you get a moment, please write us a review. And it was super successful. Brilliant idea. I love that. Eric, you, you said earlier that you were paying your tour guides more than the average. How did you make that work financially? <laughs> well, the new owners you should talk to about that. I don't know if they liked it as much as I did. But, you know, the thing is, is San Francisco is a super expensive place to live. My wife and I lived in an apartment. That same apartment now for a one bedroom was $3,700 a month. And so you're trying to pay people a living so they can stay in the city. And you really want guides that live in the city because you don't want them to be affected by public transit or something happened. You want them to be able to show up for work and, you know, get off of work and be home already. So we looked at what everyone else was paying out there, even the double-decker large bus companies. And I just kind of did the math and said, what would it take if I was going to become a tour guide in this city? Obviously, I had my company, but, you know, the profit was going to streamlining to me. But when my first employees that I hired, I had to sit back and look like, how can these people pay the rent, put food on the table? And I just kind of averaged the tips and put that all together. Then I made a raise structure. Hey, if you know you have a probation of one to three months, depending on the person. And then when you're out of probation, it's a $2 raise to this an hour. And then every year you stay with me, you get a dollar raise. Eliza, who's there now, she's been at the company now for four years. She was a tech burnout. She was talking to me the other day. She's like, I can't believe that I've worked for Vantigo longer than I have for any of the startups or tech companies that I worked for. And, you know, obviously take that as a huge compliment, but it's part of the pay, making sure that people can live and survive in the city that they're working. Well, I admire you for it because I know it's not easy. Even I had what 50 staff in San Francisco at one point when I worked at booking.com and had to fight tooth and nail for them to get the salary to be able to live comfortably in San Francisco and even working at booking.com. I mean, all right, this was back in 2010, right? But it was still tough to pay the salaries that you really need to live on in San Francisco. So I take my hat off to you as a tourpreneur to have that goal. Yeah, I think the biggest advice that I can give anyone is if someone's truly worth it. We hired, I mean, my first hire was a good friend of mine, but he took a sabbatical from being a principal. And then our second guide was someone who was working on a double-decker bus, but I feel like he was underappreciated. The guy was polyglot, could speak five languages. Even to this day, I've actually got him connected, and he has a, a job in the tech industry now. But pay people what they're worth. You know, Find the right people, recruit them, not steal them from other tour companies, but maybe go to other industries. If someone's stuck as a concierge in the hotel, if someone's a great server or bartender somewhere, if you can steal them away. The other thing too is make a schedule that helps these people. And what I mean by that is obviously weekends are a big portion of when people work and tourism happens, especially when you get into the slow season. But I made it so that I could pay people and they, you know, would want to work weekends and they wouldn't get fed up. But I also started to alternate it. So like, hey, you get every other weekend off. 
and this is your schedule. You're working three to four days this week and five to six the next or, you know, whatever the schedule ended up dictating. But I made them a schedule that wasn't so haphazard and they could plan their life and they could still have weekends and go to weddings and things of that nature. When you force someone to work every single weekend and it's not a seasonal job, it gets old pretty quick, especially if you're getting people that have college degrees or are really smart or just like really motivated. After a while, and I hate to say it, but we have so many activities um, that happen on weekends that if you're working every single weekend, unless you're making enough money to make you happy, it's really a grind. Do you have any tips when it comes to interviewing for tour guides? Were there any questions you found or strategies that helped you to, to you know, uncover the talent and recruit the talent that you needed? Yeah, it was interesting. It kind of grew up along the way. But the biggest thing I always ask is like, talk about a failure in your life or a failure in something you've done, a project of some kind. And if people couldn't come up with something like that, it was kind of a dead giveaway that like, well, if you don't know how to self-critique yourself and come back in and say, this was a big failure or problem I had in my life, and this is how I overcame it, how are you going to deal? You're on a tour, a van breaks down in the middle of the street, or in my case, one time in the middle of the Golden Gate Bridge. How are you going to handle that? How did you handle that, Eric? <laughs> Uh, well, that was an interesting day. We had this lovely van that we called Surf Van that had this more patina surf wax USA look. And I had a private tour and we were going over the Golden Gate Bridge. And later, as I found out, the fuel pump was clogged, but it broke down in the middle of the bridge. Oh. Luckily, I was on the right hand side. So I got everyone. I said, look, the railing's right next to us. You're safe right here. Please hop over the railing. And the way the Golden Gate Bridge works is you can be towed off or you can be pushed off. So I got the van pushed off and basically I told the family, look, this is obviously a really extreme situation. I want to take care of you. Let me get this van off the middle of the bridge during the middle of a busy Saturday. And then I'll call you right after. So luckily got the van off the bridge pretty quickly and called them. This is an interesting situation. You know, we all love the gory stories of being a tourpreneur. And this is one where I called the woman and said, I'm so sorry. Let me rebook you with a private tour company. I've got them on the line. And she basically refused because, you know, when you ask about Volkswagens, everyone has this nostalgia for these old vehicles. And she's just like, you know, it happens. I remember I broke down in one van and she, you know, reiterated the story. She's like, no big deal. Wow. You know, and I refunded it her and I basically sent her a gift certificate to come back again. Uh, but what was funny and kind of the gory part of the story is that her brother called me about an hour later because he was on the tour and started to really let me have it. And I waited till he was done. And I said, sir, like I called your sister and I offered her the moon and back and she refused. So I will gladly take care of you, you know, whatever you want done. And he kind of was like, oh, let me just talk to my sister a little bit. But it's funny you mentioned this about interview things. One of the interview questions that I ask is I'll actually ask people that scenario. I would say, hey, what would you do if you had a group of tourists in a bus and you broke down in the middle of the Golden Gate Bridge? What would you do? There was another time where a man, we had canceled his reservation because of a software glitch two weeks before. We'd called him multiple times. He had uh, France. He was coming with his family. And it was, of course, one of those days where I decided to have a dentist appointment and not be available on the phone for my tour guides. And the guy showed up with his family, didn't get the memo. And he was so livid that he literally sat down in front of our bus. Like he wouldn't let the tour guide leave with all the people on the bus. Oh, no. And luckily, my guide was amazing. He said, 
Hey, sir, obviously there's been a big misunderstanding. I know you're really upset. Let me get done with this tour. I'll come back and give you a private tour. He didn't have to do that, but that's the thing I look for when I was doing these interviews is, let me walk you through the scenario. What would you do? And that would be a great indicator of like how a guide's going to handle stress and customer service and everything all rolled into one. Yeah, and no, I think that's great in that interview scenario. Did you know every weekday Shane curates the most interesting news articles in tours and activities and sends them out in a snappy daily digest? Grab your copy of the Tourpreneur Daily Briefing at www.tourpreneur.com. I can't believe we're at 45 minutes already here, Eric. I feel like I could speak to you all day. I want to be mindful of your time. I want to ask you about your relationship with OTAs when you were leading your business in San Francisco. How did that look for you? Best of times, it was the worst of times. <laughs> Even to this day, you know, I sit back and look at the environment and it's uh, ever changing. We started off using uh, TripAdvisor. That was the first one we started reselling. We only did it because it was obviously integrated with the software we were using. And that was the big thing is I was so busy that I couldn't be bothered trying to maintain inventory at one site to another. We were also part of Airbnb's experiences beta the first like three times. Same problem because they don't integrate with anything. I would say now they do a great job of actually pushing people to book. But we had some real big bumps in the road. They tried the first time. It was a free model where they just wanted to hack their software so we could be almost listed like a house. And it was good. They actually didn't charge a commission and it was a big learning curve. But I'm sure all the people that are working on that project moved on to other tech jobs. So fast forward two years later, they did a buyout where they bought out three Fridays of our wine tours and they gave them away to free to guests, which, you know, less the people giving the free tours, but in the transportation based tour where you have a bus or something, if you give away a free tour, we had all these people go up to wine country and they were just, they had tastings and they tasted and they didn't buy any wine. And all the wineries were giving us really weird looks asking like, why are you bringing all these people up here? And we kind of went back to Airbnb and asked the same thing. And same thing happened again. The whole team that was working on that moved on to bigger, better jobs. And then finally, they came out with the iteration that they have now, which took some time to get approved and get on. But I will say it's a really great way. I see Airbnb experiences as an amazing way to fill last minute seats, especially since they've changed their policy about you can have guests mixed with your guests and it's not Airbnb exclusive. Is that official now? Because I know they were supposed to be being strict on it, but I'd heard from other entrepreneurs that they'd uh, kind of look the other way. But is it official or is it just they're looking the other way? I think they're looking the other way. I think that I had a frank conversation with one of them about a year after they launched Experiences. And it just sounded like they were desperate for inventory because they realized that the person who's just starting out who's just going to do this cute coffee tour once a month is not going to really make experience a profitable endeavor. So they started to realize they needed companies to be able to have inventory or tours on there on a regular basis so that they could get people to book and have people trust Airbnb experiences as a place to go to. But, you know, Airbnb experiences makes it easy. There's really some gripes about how you communicate with your customers, but they make it really easy for people. And I can tell you, I'm in a small localized wine market now where I live. And the operator that I worked with to get him on there, he's since May, he's seen about 40 bookings come in and he's a small operator and it's just out of sight, out of mind. It's, it is a pain, you know, using your booking system and taking a reservation and transferring it from theirs to yours, but it's a tool that works. 
Do you ever think they will integrate with the Resdies of the world? No, they've wholeheartedly. I mean, that's the stance they took from the beginning when I was part of the betas. It was like, if you guys could just integrate, I would put all of my stuff on here. And I had one point where someone reached out to us and said, hey, well, do you think if we put a booking button on your site or gave you this? And I responded, I said, you guys don't have all the functionality that I need to run my business. So no, I wouldn't do that. And, you know, to that point, that's why most people now, when they list their houses on Airbnb, they also list them on uh, VRBO and all these other home away other sites because they kind of treat it more as an OTA or a reseller versus an actual software provider. Yeah. And the other gripe I hear is about the no minimum guests. If only one person books, you got to take one person. How did that work for you with Vantors? Oh, well, let's just say we got creative. <laughs> I mean, that was the big thing is we kind of scofflawed the whole Airbnb exclusive piece because we just couldn't afford to do that. Yeah. Who can? Yeah. The other thing is, is we wouldn't add those people unless we had a bus already going. Right. So that was, we kind of avoided it. And that's why I was saying is, you know, it's a really great tool to fill those last minute seats. Or if you're in a small market to just get your feet wet and get people coming in the door because they do a great job of advertising, you know, five different emails before you show up that say, Hey, while you're at it, Oh, were you thinking of what about this? You know, I'm a huge fan, Eric. I just wish they would be a bit more tourpreneur friendly. And I would love to see that. I would love to see how the market would respond and react. So you were five years with the business. At what point did you try and actively sell it or were you approached? How did that whole happen? Well, you know, I was going through a good and a bad time. I had expanded Vantigo to a second location with that school bus that I told you about, an old 1951 school bus that we restored. And I was managing San Francisco from afar. And it kind of came to a point where it was, you know, honestly, I wasn't making a lot of money. My wife and I were doing well, but not great. And there was just a lot of stress and I couldn't afford to, uh, San Francisco is such a, expensive market and your staff costs so much, there was no way that I could afford to upgrade someone to be a manager and still make enough profit to, you know, handle it. And so I, I literally sat down and I crunched the numbers. I looked at all the tours. I looked at everything we were doing. I look at I looked at what the second market that I was starting up with, which was mainly a weekend market, how long it would take me to make enough money to make sense. And what it came down to, if I was didn't have a family to support or something, that would have been, I would still be doing Vantigo today because I know I could have, you know, in 10 years had this really super profitable model that would have made sense. But it came down to also me looking at if I sold Vantigo, the hardest part about selling a tour company is that what's it really worth? If you're a bus tour in San Francisco or a small van tour, how many other small van tours are out there? Okay, there's this many. Okay, can you sell to your competition? Well, there's two copycats in San Francisco that do a great job as well, but I didn't necessarily want to sell to them. Could I sell to a, a larger mini coach tour? Well, most of those companies would only be interested in the review and the redirect part of my company. Basically, taking my website, writing a nice message about how we had shut down and closed, but please check out our friends over at this tour company. The third option was selling to someone that's already working for the company that truly believes in it. 
To me, I didn't want to see my company die, right? I didn't want to ride off in the sunset and say that was fun and, you know, tell the war stories later of, oh, I used to own a tour company in San Francisco. I wanted to see it succeed. And Chad, who was working for me, great guy, really colorful background, diehard Volkswagen guy like myself and his wife coming from the hotel hospitality industry was well suited. And so I also knew when you look at the pro, like how much you could sell your company for, you probably can sell it for the most to someone who already knows the business and knows how to turn a profit out of it versus trying to sell it to a competitor that just wants to redirect or someone who wants to just like consolidate companies. So there is some profitability and consolidation. And I think the way the market's going right now, we're going to see a lot of small tour companies consolidate and sell to competitors or, you know, friendly competitors so that maybe they can do better or the market's not as fractured. I'm curious to learn then, how did you go about, and you don't have to go into actual dollar amounts here, but how did you put a price on your business? So when I was in college, I was doing small business and entrepreneurial management. And the equation that I was drilled into my head was, what's your three years of profit? What's that look like? And that's what you should be able to sell your business. I would argue for a tour company, since everything's reputation-based, that's more like two years. So what I did is I sat down and I basically developed this calculator using Google Sheets and looked at what my profit for the year would look like. And I did the math on different models, actually. I looked at what would it be if I was running the tour company with three vans doing beer and wine and city tours, what would the profit be? And then I kind of worked back. What would it be with two vans, just city tours? What would it be with this? So it was nice for the people that I was selling to because I literally did an analysis of the model and gave it to them and said, this is what I want to sell my company for. And here's the reason why it really backed up my case. And it was based on numbers too, being able to have that data and pull it in. And I think that's what people need to understand. If they are thinking about buying or selling a company, they need to look at the model and look at the numbers that someone has. And if someone can't come up with the numbers, maybe you want to pursue starting your own company because there's definitely a lot of companies out there that you might as well just start all over again because either the reputation's not there the traffic's not there and or like maybe there's too much reselling going on where it's really eaten away or eroded at it. So yeah, it's analysis. And I tell people this all the time and my wife hates it. But like when people are on the fence about it, I always say, shoot me an email, phone call, I'll walk you through the ups and downs. I'm not consulting with you. I just want to make sure that people succeed. Well, and that's why we have this podcast because it's very hard to get that unbiased information out there. So I'm really relieved to hear that you are offering assistance to people who need some advice because these businesses, as I'm sure it is with Fantigo, it's your baby, right? You have that emotional attachment to it and you're trying to look at data and you're trying to look at figures. It's difficult territory. Before we wrap up, I would love to know what kind of books and podcasts do you think were really helpful to you in growing your business and sustaining your business? You know, aside from the Torpreneur podcast, which I love, There was another podcast out there before called Tips for Tour Operators, but it's since gone quiet. The Pitch, I listen to that pretty regularly. And it's like Shark Tank, except better, because they always go back and talk to the person who was on the pitch six or a year later and ask them what they learned and how everything's going. There's another one called The Growth Show that's pretty good. You know, one that's totally off topic. I mean, we always have off topic ones, but it's interesting to me is one that's called uh, Driving While Awesome 
kind of close to my heart, but these guys, they interview a lot of really interesting people and it's all car based. And obviously I'm a Volkswagen nut. So, you know, some of that speaks to me, but I find those, you know, when people talk about Joe Rogan or, you know, other shows, diversifying podcast wise and listening to one where people tell their stories is fascinating to me and always helps me in business because there'll be some new idea I'd never thought of that'll come up book wise. Got to get out the bubble. Yeah, absolutely. But book wise, honestly, I have two little kids. So the only books I'm reading right now are history on my local area because I'm doing a tour thing here. And and the podcast. I mean, that's all I have time for. I'm about to get in a car and drive to San Francisco and I've got to listen to your podcast and all the other ones I haven't caught up on. But I really enjoy the show because people now I'm addicted to five other ones because of listening to Torpreneur. Well, that's fantastic. And I love what the pitch do. And actually, I want to replicate that on Torpreneur. We come back to different Torpreneurs and talk to them a year later about you know where they're at. What I'm trying to do is really flatten the learning curve. And for a lot of our guests, some of those lessons are still to come, for instance. What would your parting bit of advice be? Let's say there is someone listening to the show right now. Their tour is up and running, but you know they're kind of struggling, either struggling to make profits or struggling to hire tour guides. What words would you have for that person right now who maybe have a bit of a low and could use some inspiration? It's networking. I did this. I called other markets that I wasn't in. I called a tour company that I liked and said, hey, I'm in San Francisco. I've got my own business. I really love what you're doing. Do you have a moment where I can chat and just bend your ear? You know, most of us are such a friendly, it's lonely too. I think that's why your podcast does so well because you're competing against other people and it's not a coffee shop or something of that nature. It's just a different type of business. So I think the big thing is networking. I also think, I know you talk about arrival, but getting out there to those conferences is invaluable. It shows the family, but you learn so much from other operators and or you get their phone number and you can call them. I mean, I would say half of my week these days is on the phone with tourpreneurs that I've made really good friends with and I'm running ideas by them and talking and coaching and thinking about things. So I think it's just pick up the phone or email another tour company that you emulate, even if it's local and maybe it's a competitor you think, you may sit down and have a cup of coffee and find out one, you're not as competitive as you thought you were, but also two, that they're a person that's willing to help you. So I think that's the big thing is network. Go to conferences like Arrival, reach out to people, listen to the podcast, call people that have been on those shows and talk to them. Where can people find you online, Eric, if they wanted to get in touch with you? I think the easiest, you could find me on Facebook or LinkedIn or any of those areas and put my lovely German name in there and you'll find me in there and just reach out to me. Uh, even through my former company, my email is still active. But yeah, you know, I'll give you that information and pass along and people are more than willing to, I'm always willing to get on the phone and chat with people. Yeah. And I see you very active in a lot of the, the Facebook groups as well, including the Tourpreneur Insiders Facebook group as well. And they're good, you know, especially for tour operators who may not know others is to get onto these groups and i'll add a link on the show notes which you can find at tourpreneur.com forward slash 30 eric thanks very much for coming on the show and sharing your wisdom today i hope we can invite you on in the future because i know there's a ton of other topics i'd love to talk to you about so we can share your knowledge on a future uh, episode of the show 
Perfect. Well, thank you so much for having me and everyone keep on keeping on and listening to the show. And I'm excited to learn more from everyone else that comes on. Thanks for listening to the Torpreneur podcast. Be sure to visit Torpreneur.com to join the conversation and access the show notes, including links to the resources mentioned on today's episode. This is Torpreneur.